Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Tonight we have a special treat. And really, the treat is for Fatima and myself. Because just like everybody, we too have our favorite podcasts and our favorite people who we really admire. Fatima is geeking out over here, so I want to make sure that I get her in and let her introduce our guest because, look, this is her night. <laughs> Thank you. Chris always introduced the guests, but it gets to be me tonight. I'm really excited. Um, I mean, can you tell I'm fangirling everyone? Definitely. You should Listen. see her face. Y'all should see her face. I wish you could see it. <laughs> well, this is going to be on YouTube, right? This one? So yeah, we're, we're definitely going to YouTube on this one. Um, look, I don't really have favorite celebrities or get freaked out over meeting certain people. Okay, wait. I did freak out over meeting Keith Morrison from Dateline, but it's Keith Morrison and those are my kind of celebrities, right? Journalists, activists, um, investigative journalists. I, I love that. Judges. Retired um, homicide who, investigators. Reti- absolutely. Hello, brother. Okay. Of course. Right, that's who I geek out and get excited about um, because they're people I admire and I aspire to be like. And it's really exciting work to me. I get really excited about it. So I just want to let everybody know if you if you didn't see my posts already at the end of last year, I stumbled upon a podcast and it had me captivated from beginning to end, all nine episodes. It was the story, the storytelling, the investigative skills and the developments. It was a lot of highs and a lot of lows. I just could not stop listening. And I think I binged it probably in a few days. So that goes to show I was just finding, I think I told people I was just around my house, like, oh, I think I got to clean this now. And my husband was really excited about it. I think I'll I'll cook dinner just because the whole time, rather than being with my toddler, I was like, (laughs) I got to find out what happens. Um, And the end, we don't want to give everything up because those who are listening, we do want you, if you haven't listened already, to go and listen to the podcast. Um, But tonight we have the host of that podcast, the podcast known as Bone Valley, everyone. It is getting critical acclaim right now. It's everywhere. It's going to win a lot of awards. I already know it. I'm so excited about it. Um, Everybody, this is Gilbert King. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of Devil in the Grove, a 2012 nonfiction book about Thurgood Marshall's defense of four young black men in Lake County, Florida, who were accused in 1949 of raping a white woman. This book, y'all, it helped lead to the pardons of all four young men 72 years after the allegations. That's just wild. (laughs) You wrote a book. And it led to the pardons of these young men and they're not even alive to see it, but gosh, their family must just be so thrilled and feel so blessed to have this. It is such a gift because so many folks are innocent and they, they pass on and they are never exonerated. So bravo to you. Kudos on that. Well-deserved ladies and gentlemen, I'm so pleased to introduce you author, podcaster, investigative journalist, all of the above Gilbert King. <laughs> you guys are so great. I have to say I, that's the greatest introduction I've ever had in my life. Yay! I want to take you guys out of the road so with cool. me. Gilbert, we are absolutely honored to have you on the podcast. And you know, look, Fatima and I are both fans of what you've done with Bone Valley. And I'll be honest with you. I didn't listen to it until Fatima first told me about it. She suggested me listening to it. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll I'll give it a whirl or whatever. I was thinking it was just going to be 
one of those normal, you know, defense attorney, not really innocent. Yeah. You know, one of those cases, but oh my God. <laughs> and when you can get a man that has seen what I saw in my career to say that about your, your podcast, look, it, it, it truly impressed me. So wow. we, we, uh, we want to talk about as much as we can get in about Bone Valley. But first, as you are aware, this is a true crime and cookie juice podcast. So Fatima and I try to find a little bit of time to ease down a little bit of bourbon or whatever your cookie juice is. And it helps everybody that is involved, you know, relax and open up a little bit more. So tonight I'm going to ask you, what are you drinking? With us? <laughs> what are you sipping on over there? Well, I've got this beautiful Italian bottle that's <laughs> unfortunately that filled with straight up water. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to be the most boring guest because I totally forgot to bring my bourbon. No, that's no. okay. Some of our guests actually, they're not big drinkers. So they're doing coffee or water. Oh. Chris has done Dasani before on our show. So that's don't right. worry about Sonny. that. Dasani. Oh boy. Yeah. But we are Sonny's curious. Our favorite now. We actually last week had the treat of uh, interviewing with the first black female bourbon blender. And we learned some new things about bourbon and it's just so cool to learn about, you know, it's not just smooth, it's the tenons in it that mm -hmm. are wonderful and the yeah. flavor. So I'm just curious, do you like bourbon? Do you like whiskey? What's your preferred beverage on the road? I like martinis. And so I'm kind of a vodka guy, yeah. but I definitely love bourbon. I'm not as like skilled at recognizing the tannins and that level. Mm -hmm. I just try to find a decent bottle and I've been getting into tequila, just straight up on a, on the rocks a little bit. If mm -hmm. it's, you know, decent tequila. And so those you are have my some three... tough days then yeah. just straight yeah, yeah. tequila, well, straight tequila, <laughs> you know, these boys back just like two fists in them. <laughs> and look, just, just so you know, Fatima and I are not experts in bourbon. I'm an expert in homicide investigation. She's an expert in being an attorney, but bourbons, we just like bourbons. We, we, just, we really like drinking bourbon. I want bourbons. to get some recommendations from you guys then, because I'm that, really we, kind we of a newer blitz. guy. Well, you I have one for you tonight because, well, Chris, you know, because we busted out the big guns with Gilbert, I decided to bust out the big guns again <laughs> with my bourbon. Oh, did you? Now, yeah. wow. Gilbert, this is called Blanton's and mm. it is this down. delicious. Mm. Blanton's original single barrel, single barrel bourbon whiskey. Um, Chris will give you the spiel all about this later, but basically Chris collects them. Mm -hmm. Each bottle mm -hmm. has a different letter on it. And he's almost completed the word Blanton's, I think, which yes. is a little wow. scary, but God bless you. Wow. That's um, a beautiful bottle. It, it is. is. It was a gift from ID because mm -hmm. they are awesome. They always sent really good gifts. My yeah, it's not a full it. bottle. That's it's sure. delicious. And <laughs> um and and pricey, so it makes me feel very bougie when I sip it. <laughs> and now I can be even bougier, Chris, because I have to show you. I was drinking out of this last week. And I forgot to tell you, one of Justin's friends. I'm gonna wow. get the name. I didn't get it in time, but he, uh, the gym here, his friends know I do this podcast. I drink bourbon. They give a lot of recommendations. They've even mm -hmm. given me some bourbon to try for the yeah. show. But one of them does glass blowing, and how really? beautiful is this little is whiskey cool. glass? And I'm so jealous, yeah. a whiskey, a blown whiskey glass. Yes. I am extremely jealous. 
Mm-hmm. Just want to put that out there. Let your friends know oh, wow. that when they watch this episode or listen to this episode, that Chris Anderson is very jealous of a blown glass. I'm partner. Whiskey I'm going to hook you up and make sure you get one of these. I got to get the name. They're going to open a store here in Oakland. See, that's why. Um, but you. a little. I mean, glass blowing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's cool. who does that? Yeah, that's I'm amazing. That, up. that is a beautiful oh, glass too. I like the. Yeah. I like this. You know, it just looks beautiful. So. It is. So Blanton's Gilbert, when you, when you're celebrating something and you want it, you want to try something new and sip a bourbon. I think that's a really good one, right, Chris? Absolutely. Gilbert. It, it is an awesome tasting bourbon. And, you know, I think bourbons taste better when there's a story behind it. There's a story behind the, the horses and letters and all of that other stuff. Oh. Horses, actually, uh, if you line them all up, there is, uh, they all will line up in the way that horses came into the, at the Kentucky Derby. If you line all with seven or eight wow. of the Blantons up, it, it's it's a cool story. Wow, that's yeah. really amazing. It's a, it's a really cool story. If you collect all of them, it's something, it's a, you know, it, it's a trophy for me. That's the reason why I'm trying to collect all of them by drinking the bottles and not just going out and buying it. I want to collect yeah. them, at, you know, because it's a cool story behind it. Okay. So what you sipping on over there, Chris? All right, so my choice bottle for tonight, and look, I didn't bring out the big guns like a bottle of Blanton's, but I did bring out <laughs> one of my favorite liquors. And you let me guess, made... Angel's Envy. No, it's not Angel's Envy. Um, like... Will it? No, it's not mm-hmm. Will it. Look at you. But we we've had it on the four road. Four roses. I like four roses. That's your drink. I like four yeah. roses. It's all right. It's not one of my favorites. But mm. this is the. Um, Oh, Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark, yeah. But this is a special bottle. It's the 101. It's a limited release bottle. Uh, It has a much higher alcohol content than most of the Maker's Marks that Mm. you have. Uh, Slow down over there then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't be doing this (laughs) too much. So this will probably be all that I drink. And Gilbert, if you watch any of our episodes, I know you're looking at this. I usually put ice in my drink, but I was way too lazy to go upstairs and get some ice today. So (laughs) we're going to sip this very, very slow. Because yeah. if you don't, You're by doing the end of this podcast, I'll be asking you questions about <laughs> personal stuff that probably. Should... How do I get on the road with you? Gilbert? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm tired of my job. Let's go have some fun investigating. <laughs> but if you're interested, the, the notes in this in this one is a very spicy type notes, and you'll get very intense notes of caramel. So, Fatima, I think that you would love this because you mm. are the spicy sweet type drinker i do uh so i, I like think, maker's mark yeah, yeah, i yeah. love a good manhattan with mm-hmm. that i mean yeah you're feeling really you know you just want to have a relaxing evening just want to sip it so yeah. so if you like this then you would love the the the, the specialized bottle of the one i'm gonna case. try that one yeah. all right i'm writing that one down too 101 yeah there you go you're Make, gonna sound maker's so mark well listen now that we have the basics covered mm-hmm. let's talk more about this major project which is bone valley You've been working on this how many years now? Four years, Gilbert? Yeah, I wouldn't look at like, you know, like we, we the investigation and all that reporting took three years. And then we took another year to do the writing and, and there was still a lot of follow-up investigation. So I would say the whole project lasted like four years. And, you know, to be honest with you, it's still not done. We're still working on all it. Right. We're doing bonus yeah. episodes. But but yeah, I would say four years is what it took to really bring it to the rate to the you know podcast land. So if you would, in your own words, can you give us a brief description about the podcast? Yeah, it's like, you know, it's a story about this young man, Leo Schofield, who's like a heavy metal guitarist, and he's, you know, 22 years old, he's married to 18 year old Michelle, 
And, you know, they're trying to get through life. She's got a job as a waitress in a local restaurant. And just one day in 1987, she just does not come back from work. She calls Leo and says, I'll be right over. And she never shows up. And it leads to a search that went on for days. Um, a, a two days into the disappearance, they find her car and they start searching backwards from that car. And then they find her body and she's in a, dumped in a canal and she's been stabbed 26 times. Mm. Um, the case starts out like there's really no evidence that points to Leo Schofield. Um, you know, he's participating with the investigation and everything. And, you know, 15 months pass. And finally, they decide to charge Leo Schofield with the murder of his wife. It's always maintained his innocence, convicted, sent off to prison. And 17 years into his prison sentence, they find some fingerprints in Michelle's car that were never identified. They run the prints and they come back to another young man, Jeremy Scott, who lived about a mile away from the Schofields. And uh, he's convicted of murder and he's in prison and the prints match him. And so that's really the basis of the story. Um, and we set out to sort of investigate not just Leo's alibi, but also who is Jeremy Scott. And so that's basically the story about finding both of these men who are connected to this murder. Both One of them says he's innocent. The other one confesses to it. And the state will believe neither man. I wow. think that's what was what really made it so fascinating, too, is it, it went from one story to almost multiple stories. Um, and we'll get more into that. But from uh, so from the way you explained it, you first became involved because a judge approached you at a conference, right, about looking into the case of Leo Schofield. And we actually have a little clip of how you first became involved. And I love the way that you explain it here. So I'm just going to play it. Hang up, though. He asks a favor. Just read the trial transcripts. Don't take my word for it. Read the transcripts. Because that's what hooked me. And that's what should hook everyone. So that's what I do. I sit down in front of the computer and start reading trial transcripts that he sends me. Typed up pages of everything that was said in the courtroom during Leo's trial. There are thousands of pages. And I can't stop reading. The state's theory of the crime makes no sense to me. There's nothing that resembles a real search for truth and justice. And even though I already know the jury's verdict, I'm still shocked that the trial ends with Leo's conviction. I'm also completely hooked. I get back to Judge Cup with a ton of questions, and his answers only confirm what a shit show this case is. I start thinking that maybe I can take a short break from writing my book, spend some time down in Florida doing research for a feature story on this case. But the more I looked into it, the more obsessed I became. There seemed to be so much more to this story. And that short break from my book, it wasn't so short. I would end up spending the next three and a half years of my life doing what Judge Cup was hoping I'd do. A thorough investigation into the Leo Schofield case, something that the state of Florida never did. So it sounds like you didn't automatically assume that this judge was correct and that this Leo Schofield was innocent. You know, I'm, I'm always skeptical about this stuff. And, you know, it, to be honest with you, coming from a judge, I thought that was a pretty credible source. You know, he'd written on this card, not just wrongfully convicted. He's an innocent man. He was really adamant about it. This is what and, the judge you know, said? Yeah, that's what yeah. the judge said to me. And when, when I finally called him and started 
he started talking to me about the case. I, I found it was really interesting, but you know, I was working on a book at the time. And so my answer to him was like, well, I, I, you know, it's going to take a while cause I got to finish this book and I could just hear, he's like, no, we don't have time. And he just said, do me a favor, just read the transcript. And that was a key moment because I, he, you know, I kind of promised him I would, yeah. uh, and I, I did. And I started reading and, you know, like I'm not a lawyer to be honest with you. So this stuff takes me a little longer than it probably takes you guys. You're familiar with this. Um, I've read a lot of transcripts, but I'm still not a lawyer, but I was reading this and I'm like, I got to the end and I had the same, there's no way this guy did it. Like you can tell all the little tricks and the misrepresentations of evidence that the state was trying to do. It wasn't a search for truth. And uh, by, by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, this is ridiculous. This guy was wrongfully convicted. And mm -hmm. that's only part of the story because, you know, you guys deal with this all the time. There's Lots of people are wrongfully convicted. You know, mm -hmm. it happens. It's not It's not even that unusual anymore. You see, like, somebody who's been exonerated because of DNA. Um, but in this particular case, what really interested me is that there's another person who's, you know, forensically tied to the crime scene that they didn't investigate. The state did yeah. not investigate. And so that left an opening for us to do the investigation. And, you know, I think that's where we really got to the heart of the matter. It was pretty obvious to us that Leo didn't do it. But, you know, what did happen? How did Michelle die? That's what we really wanted to try and figure out and, and sort of put it together in terms of looking at the whole criminal justice system. How can this man still be in prison when someone else is forensically tied to the crime scene and has confessed in detail? That is the question that's just staggering to most people. So it sounds like to me, you were searching for the truth for yourself, not just taking the word of the judge. You, you wanted to do it yourself. Yeah, I mean, after a while, after I started questioning the judge a lot and he was answering all my questions, I started to get mm -hmm. much more familiar with the case. So I, I believed him at that point. And he, you know, he, he wasn't some crazy judge that was, you know, flying off the handle and just, oh, I can't trust this guy. He may be a judge. He was like a straight arrow, very conservative judge. Um, so he just, there, there was a lot of credibility that came with his, you know, his telling me that, that Leo Schofield was absolutely innocent. Speaking of searching for yourself, Gilbert, you really are a truth seeker. You research and investigate cases that are, they're controversial, they're heavy. What drives you to do this kind of work? How did you get involved to begin with? Yeah, you know, I, I I've been thinking about this a lot, and and I, it came to realize that when I was a, a younger kid, I, the the books that I were read was reading at the time, I was just very fascinated with like the Count of Monte Cristo, Papillon, guys who have been wrongfully convicted and then sent off to Devil's Island, and they either have to escape. I don't know when I was a kid, I wanted this adventure, but I really, as a young man, I really had like a real strong connection to this loss of freedom when the state is is just sending an innocent man to prison and ruining his life and for some reason that just really resonated with me and you know but unfortunately like life happens i got into other areas of work and and i always wanted to write but like you know now i'm in my 40s and i'm like doing another job i was a photographer and i just remember like i'm not doing what i love what i really loved was telling stories and doing these kind of investigations and um, and so I just kind of switched careers in my 40s and started writing books. Mm. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to get one published, but it started me down this road that I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. Once you get involved with this stuff, it's just, it's so, I don't want to say addicting, but you do get obsessed with it. Mm. And, you know, like you feel like, wow, the police in this case didn't fully investigate this person. I'm going to do that investigation. And uh, there's something really exciting about that. Like, yeah. 
you know, sometimes I have, I sometimes call it subpoena envy, you know, like I, I wish I could make people talk to me, you know, like go in and, and that's like one of those things that always drives me crazy. But on the other hand, sometimes when you're with the media or you're, you're you know, a writer, a storyteller, you get people to talk to you in a very different way. And I think that's what we had with Jeremy Scott. You know, he said, I want to tell my story, but I don't know how to do it. And I said, I want to listen. And that was all it really took. And, you know, going in under that, like now it's, it's his terms. And to me, it's like, well, why would he want to go in on his terms and start lying to me about stuff? He wanted to come clean. He wanted to talk. And Mm -hmm. so that's a really big part of the story is just trying to figure out Leo's case. And then, well, now Jeremy has agreed to sit down with us and talk. And, and, you know, that this is like a moment that I think, you know, the state had their chance with Jeremy Scott. They asked idiotic questions. They didn't want to hear anything from him because they were protecting that conviction. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times detectives are interviewing him and they're grilling him and he, he's, he's irate and he's irate on the stand, get him relaxed and, you know, get him motivated. He's telling his story the way he wants to tell it. And if you get to that, it's actually an advantage than of, of being an investigator or a mm-hmm. lawyer. You're just getting someone who's telling the story. So that's sort of how we were motivated to move through the story. You make a good point, though, because I think when an individual believes that who they're speaking with is somebody who has no interest in, they don't have any one side they're particularly rooting for. What they're looking for is the truth. That oftentimes is a journalist, is an author, a writer. It's even if you are saying, I'm working with Leo Schofield, you, I'm sure, made it known. Look, we're just trying to get to the truth. We we don't want you to lie about your involvement if you weren't. We don't. We're not trying to get you on the stand so that you could be. We just want the truth, and it is easier for them to open up. And unfortunately, it played out when he gets on the stand back in that judicial atmosphere where you have a judge and a defense attorney, a prosecutor. Everyone has a different interest. Everybody mm-hmm. does have some skin in the game now it is more hostile rather than yeah. him just having a conversation with you. So I can imagine you were probably so frustrated going, this isn't the way to get the truth out. This isn't the uh, way yeah. to get him to open up. This is very adversarial. This is very hostile, but that is our, our justice system, right? There are two people that one is going to be cross-examining. One will be direct. And sometimes the direct examination will end up hostile. And that right there, we've seen it play out, Chris and myself, where we may know the truth. We may know what somebody was comfortable finally opening up about years later, but now they're just, they're feeling attacked and it's not coming out. And this is your one shot. It's devastating, really. You know, you hit, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, that he was, even when like Leo's lawyers were questioning him, they had to have him declared a hostile witness because he was off his meds. He was being held in a psych cell. He just wanted to get back to his prison. And, you know, he says, look, I'm, I'm sitting on a cold floor, eating food with my fingers. Uh, I, I, I need to get out of here. I want to go back to my camp. He doesn't want to be there. So he's adversarial with everybody who's questioning him. And you can tell he's not relaxed. He's just answering yes, no. Sometimes he gets it wrong. You know, he says yes and no. He intertwines them. It's just not really a great way to get to the truth. You know, with us, we wanted to get him into the into the realm of memory, because I think like when someone's just saying a, a prepackaged story, like yes, I, I I didn't kill Michelle. No, I had nothing to do with it. They don't. They're not dealing with memory. They're just using mm-hmm. words. We wanted to get him to talk about stories in a narrative and have him describe it and get very detailed about it. 
And that's what he was willing to do. So our questions are like, how did that feel? What were you thinking when this happened? And, and he was just very relaxed. And you could tell he was thinking back because, you know, he, he at some time, at some point he starts getting choked up and wants to cry. And you could tell he was dealing with memories. He says at one point, you know, right before he killed Michelle, he's thinking, you know, I should have just swallowed my pride and gone to the Salvation Army. Like he's really laying himself out there very vulnerably and, and saying things that, you know, he's never going to say on the witness stand or to detectives. But, you know, we just questioned him in a very peaceful way and just we, we didn't really grill him specific questions. Just how did that feel? And what were you thinking? You know, you just left prison. What, where were you going? And those are the kind of things that he was able to think back and say, it was cold, it was raining. I remember I was starving. I hadn't had something to eat. And I saw this girl on the payphone. You know, these were memories. And he's bringing up details that just are so abstract and accurate that, you know, he just, no, there's no way that's you know, he's lying about this. He couldn't have got that information. Mm -hmm. So tell me about Leo Schofield, because early on, we can tell that he's not a very likable guy. You know, there are allegations that he would beat his wife, Michelle. He's in a rock band, you know, sometimes that's not a really a good look and he didn't seem to be a good guy. How, how much do you think his testimony was influenced in the jury? You know, I think the, the jury had already made up their mind before he, Leo got to the stand. I think the state got away with opening up their entire case with um, bad character evidence. Yeah. So they brought up, I think it was 21 straight witnesses. I saw Leo punch a hole in the wall. I saw him smash his guitar. Um, I, I I think he slapped Michelle once. I heard a noise that sounded like a slap. Um, you know, just describing these this person who is Leo Schofield, um, that never should have been able to open the case. But you know, he, he the the prosecutor should have filed a notice of intent saying he was going to do this, and he never did. And brought it in, and the his Leo's defense attorney never objected to this. So all of this evidence got in to open up the state's case. I think at that point, the jury had already decided, like, this guy's a violent, horrible person, and anything that comes afterwards didn't really matter. So by the time I think Leo got to the stand, you know, I, I've read this a million times because there was no audio or no video of this. So I've read the transcript repeatedly. And, you know, he, he never gets tripped up. He just sticks to the same answers. They're very short answers. But you could tell from the witnesses who were at the trial, they said he just didn't come off very well because, you know, he, he wasn't like being you know, showing any emotion. Uh, and he was just sort of a scared young kid getting grilled and, you know, denying the things that the prosecutor was accusing him of. It's a very awkward position to be in, but I thought he held up pretty well on paper, uh, but I can't tell how he came across in trial, but I could tell from other people that said it, that he just didn't come off that well. So, you know, he had a lot of things going against him at trial, including, you know, his father, who, you know, was the one who actually found the body and then made some comment like God led me to the body and sort of insinuated that there was a premonition. I was um, and so bugged by that, them bringing that up constantly. It was so yeah. ridiculous, especially when you're dealing with a state that it is part of the Bible belt. This is the South mm -hmm. when you're a Christian or, or you're surrounded by other folks like that. You say these things. I have families say all the time, you know, God told me that it was over there, that it was going to happen this way. I was going to get my new car, whatever it may yeah. be. Mm -hmm. You hear that. That doesn't mean that you don't take that person literally. The dad was probably, in my opinion, he was probably just felt so 
proud in a way that that he was able to bring closure to this for her family for his family his son that he was the one that led them to the body that he made it a divine thing yeah. well god spoke to me right well because you don't want to credit yourself sometimes people don't even want to say well i was doing the hard work in here and she's oh well god told me and the fact that that was made into such a big uh. deal it drives me nuts because People say it all the time and it's not used against you in a negative way, but it was used here because they're grasping. Right. In my opinion, they're grasping. Yeah. And I imagine it's like a traumatic event to find a body and you want to find some significance to it. Like it was me that found the body. You know, mm -hmm. he also said some really weird things that sort of gives you an insight into his personality. He said that Michelle was laying face up. And when he first saw her, she was smiling as if saying, thank you for finding me. Well, Michelle was floating face down so that was not accurate he was saying that to sort of make people feel better like she was at peace you know she was she was resting comfortably and he was trying to help people you know get over it by adding these incorrect facts that made them maybe feel better like mm -hmm. you know what is he going to come back she was cut up you know like right. stab wounds totally all over sick. like you're not going to tell that to people you say you know she was resting comfortably she looked like she was smiling she was peaceful you know the only reason to say that kind of stuff is to sort of bring some comfort to the people around yeah. her. Like, there's no motivation to say stuff like that um so and just you know, so our listeners know a little more of the background here uh the father of leo schofield they're all out looking for her and they are going i mean mile by mile they break up down down this long two-way road and they are just looking down in ditches for her because there's a body of water down there and they were already at it for hours and the father is the one who discovered her body and he made a statement to a detective later that was something along the lines of God told me where she was or where to find her. Right. 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 And, you know, he only said that after he found the body, but the state makes it sound like, and every time we talk to people in, in Polk County to ask them about this case, if they're familiar with it. Oh yeah. But then the father woke up in the middle of the night and said, I know where the body is. And he brought the police with him and that's not what happened, but you know, like it's that, 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 that story gets into the appellate record, but the judges are saying this now because it's part of this modern folklore um, of what happened that night. It's not accurate, but it gets placed like the father woke up in the middle of the night and led, he must have known where the body was. It's obvious. He didn't. He just made that story up after he found the body. And, yeah. and incidentally, it was a three-day search. And he was a he was he had a really bad fever and flu at the time. Like, why didn't he have why didn't he find the body on day one and get it all over with? I mean, right. and also if he really did kill Michelle, why would he even leave, lead the police there anyway? You know, it doesn't make any oh, yeah. sense. Then, then he it, was the suspect, right? Yeah. I mean, he, it was a search. Once they found the car, they just worked backwards six miles to get back to the restaurant where she was last seen. And that's the route they took. There was nothing like waking up in the middle of the night and going out to some ditch in the middle of nowhere. It was a methodical search that was, you know, done with a plan. Uh, it just happened that Leo's father found the body and he said some really weird things that did not help his son. Unfortunately, that happened. Yeah. We know that character evidence is highly prejudicial. And unfortunately, that evidence, those statements about Leo and the way he was to his wife before she died, um, the way their marriage was, all of that, it, it did come in and it, it shouldn't because how prejudicial it is, because a jury will convict you on that. They will convict you for just, well, he's capable. He's a bad guy. He wasn't really good to his wife. He, he wasn't there all the time. He didn't love her. 
Mind you, they're a very young couple. They weren't even dating long before they were married. They were not married long. Not that that's any excuse for the treatment of her, but a bad husband doesn't make a murderer. So despite all of that evidence, there was other information in the trial that didn't add up. The timeline doesn't even add up for Leo to commit the murder. And then we have this faulty eyewitness testimony from a neighbor who says that she saw him removing something heavy from his home that night, insinuating it's the body of Michelle. Uh, and the defense does their job in pointing out her inconsistencies because her statements kind of all over the place. Turns out it really wasn't that night. Um, and, and that was, that was also proven by detectives who also came in and they looked at the house and they, they saw that it hadn't been cleaned uh, and they didn't find blood or anything there. So all of that doesn't even add up. Do you think the jury believed her at all? Or once again, do you think that they just felt like he's a bad guy? We're convicting him. I think they felt like he was a bad guy and that, that was, that came across and, 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 uh, you know, the closing arguments were all about the father's premonition and, you know, it's just all, all this weird innuendo and emotional stuff that, you know, really shouldn't have been in there to be, to be honest with you. But, you know, this was the part where I was reading the transcript and what really ended up happening was that the prosecutor was, was young. He was very sharp. He was very aggressive and he just had an older guy there who was sort of not prepared for this. And so it just looked like one of those lawyers knew what he was talking about. And the other guy was constantly confused. And that is not a good look when you're yeah. on trial for your life. Um, you know, but when I was reading the, the transcript, the one thing that becomes clear is Alice Scott, who's the neighbor who said she saw Leo carrying out something heavy. When you line it up with the other state witness, her sister-in-law who lived right next door and you know, Alice says on the stand, like, look, I'm not really good with dates. I don't really remember the dates, but the sister says, I remember. And she remembers because she, they both saw Leo carrying out something heavy. And <sighs> she said, we were joking about it. We said, I wonder what's in there. Maybe there's a body in there. And they were joking about it because it was like a week or two before Michelle disappeared. And, and so all of a sudden that story got to the prosecutor and somehow you know, it might have been, well, maybe it was that night. Are you not sure it could have been the night Michelle disappeared? Something like that happened because now she's saying she saw it on the night Michelle disappeared. Mm. And and so, you know, it's obviously that the sister-in-law was much more coherent. She clearly had a, a strong memory. And she says, yes, we both saw that, but it was not the night that Michelle disappeared. I know that because I didn't talk to Alice that night. And this was a week or two earlier. Wow. So let's talk about Jeremy Scott because... Ultimately, we all believe that he killed Michelle Schofield. He admits to it. He confesses to it. But wow, hearing about his story, about his upbringing, as a listener, suddenly you kind of find yourself sympathizing with this human being, someone who does a monstrous thing. Did you find yourself in that same type of situation? Like, like you, you kind of empathize with this man? Yeah, I'll tell you how this happened because, you know, obviously through the, through the whole reporting, it wasn't that way. And the more we learned about him, you know, his background and, you know, he was homeless at age 10, already getting arrested for, you know, major crimes at age 11. And it just got more and more violent until they put him away. But, you know, ultimately we were following Leo's lead the whole time. And this is something that, you know, was a surprise to me. But, you know, when you talk to someone who's been wrongfully convicted and has spent 35 years behind prison and they're still alive 
and they're still, mm -hmm. you know, functioning and trying to make the best of things, you're dealing with a very special person. Yeah. And he has been exposed to something where he knows he's innocent. He said he's innocent, but he didn't have the kind of proof. And then all of a sudden these fingerprints emerge and it links a convicted murderer to that car. And then this man confesses multiple times in detail to killing the woman that Leo's in, in prison for killing. Um, in order to survive that, he felt like he was getting so bitter and so angry. He had to learn how to forgive Jeremy. It was the only thing that was going to you know, enable him to continue to live in peace and, and acceptance of his situation. And so he, he prayed to God that, you know, to help him forgive. And he also prayed for God to forgive Jeremy because he's learned about Jeremy's story. And he says, you know, this is not the monster that I was imagining for all these years. This is just mm -hmm. a pathetic kid who's been abused. Um, there's no rhyme or reason. It's a random killing. It wasn't anything that stood out especially it was just wrong place the wrong time with the wrong person yeah. and all of that is just kind of deflating for leo like there's no monster here this is just a a, a stupid kid who's doing really stupid violent things so he he kind of lost that hatred and he began to empathize with jeremy and you know yeah. i think that was one of the things he said to us like i want the people around me to to respect jeremy and we want the truth from him you know and he says, I'm grateful for the truth. I'm grateful that he's saying the things he's saying. And it's really tragic because you can hear it in, in Jeremy's voice. You know, Jeremy's just, he doesn't know Leo. He doesn't really yeah. care about Leo. He just basically says that guy didn't do it. He doesn't belong there. Uh, you know, that's just a man who's having to live with the things that he's done for the last 35 years. And I can't imagine what that's like. But when we talked to Jeremy's brother, he said, look, he's got a conscience. This stuff weighs on you and it gets worse over time. And that's yeah. pretty much what Jeremy was telling us. Did you believe that Jeremy was remorseful in your conversations with him? Yeah, I definitely do. You know, it's interesting because the, the parole board, uh, when, when, when Leo goes before the parole board, the thing that's always holding him back from getting paroled is the fact that he won't apologize for killing Michelle and he doesn't show any remorse. He can, he's got a claim of innocence. Um, and, but the remorse that the state is seeking, all they have to do is talk to Jeremy. You know, he's remorseful because he says, look, I see the faces of the people I killed when I wake up. It's like, that's my torture. That's my punishment. And, and there was no doubt sitting in the room and hearing him say that, uh, he's not like uh, Lawrence Olivier. He's not like mm -hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis. He's not, you know, a great actor. You know, he he's he's speaking from the heart. Yeah. His story Did is is so sad when you, that was a difficult, that's a difficult episode. I, I think for people, it's important and we tend, this is what Reasonable Doubt was about a lot is showing the other side oh. of the story, right? Mm -hmm. Even when, we had some individuals who we couldn't help. It wasn't a wrongful conviction. So unlike you, if we were to able able to spend four years, three years on a case, so we don't have a lot of time. So as we start, we really don't know, is this going to be a wrongful conviction or not? And I'll tell you, there were so many times I prayed it was a wrongful conviction because the defendant was just so not only likable, but just you empathize so much with their mm -hmm. story. There were individuals who were neglected, who were abused, taken advantage of as children left 
on their own abandoned. And it's really sad because we know hurt people hurt people. And so the odds of them committing the crime were probably more likely, but you just didn't want it to be true because this person, you just had such sympathy for their story. And you wanted to believe that, gosh, this, this poor person that went through all that, no, I don't want to believe they did this. And, yeah. and sometimes we had to, we had to face that truth, but it, it, at the same time, we did respect them as human beings. We did show them love and compassion as human beings, uh, especially when they, you could see that they didn't have a chance in life. This is, this was going to be their fate. They were going to hurt other people because they just didn't know how not to. That's all that had, a, that's all that had ever been done to them. Mm. So in listening to this part of the episode, that one episode about Jeremy and his background, um, it, I think to humanize him in such a way is so important. It's so important for listeners to understand everybody has a story, everyone behind bars, every murderer, every person who commits a crime, they too have a story. And maybe as a community, if we all start to look around a little more, and if we all start to pay attention to these young people, when we see those early signs, we could avoid these kinds of things. We can't, we can't just say, oh, it's just in their blood. Yeah, yeah. Some people, they are born pretty evil, you, you yeah. know, but others they're you're, you're creating a monster because the system is allowing it to happen. And that is what was really sad about Jeremy's story. So it's nice to hear that Leo has found some peace in that and forgiven him. And I'm sure it, it's helped Leo in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really has. And like Leo's interesting because like he'll say things to you that don't really register until you think about them later. And just, wow, that was something that was really, really poignant. And, you know, he said to me one time, he goes, I just, you know, want you to know that like, I forgive Jeremy because I needed that to survive. This is how I got through it. But I don't, I am not entitled to forgive Jeremy for Michelle's family, like that her, her father and her family that I don't have the right to forgive him. I'm mm -hmm. just forgiving him for my own situation. And like, that was a really poignant thing to say. And he says that kind of thing a lot. One of the things that he said to me, you know, it just kind of sort of solidified who Leo is. And he said, you know, Gilbert, I'm just so grateful that you're bringing my story out here. And, you know, it means the world to me. And, and, um, you know, there's nothing I can give you to repay you. I just have nothing. And I, I just, the only thing I can give you that's worth something is the fact that I've given you the truth and this will never, ever come back on you. Like the, there will never be a day where you go, oh, Leo was lying the whole time or this. And he said <laughs> it with such sincerity that like, I'm giving you my word that this can never come back on you and embarrass you in any way. And and that is alone is a a great gift. Yeah. You know, I didn't really need to hear it at that point, but when he says those kind of things, you sort of recognize you're dealing with someone who's, you know, he really is special at this point. You know, he's got a, a sense of humanity that comes from the pain that he sees and observes and helps people with and his job as a pastor in, in the prison. He, mm -hmm. you know, he's like a leader when there's a young kid that comes in, who's having a really difficult time adjusting to prison it's Leo they go to and Leo right. helps them through. And I've met some of these people in the prison. So, you know, he really is a remarkable human being. Mm. That reminds me, Chris, of our, who was our, uh, oh gosh, Bertha. Bertha, Bertha Owens. Bertha Owens. Yeah. yeah the, the, the changes that you see in her in prison. It's just, it was just wrongfully convicted as wrongfully well convicted, on yes. some reasonable doubt, but she just helps. Ev she's just a blessing mm -hmm. to everyone 
in prison. So it, it's like she has a purpose there. Yeah. And you know, Leo's even told me, you know, at times we, we talk on the phone a lot and, you know, he'll say something like, you know, Gilbert, I don't even know if I can get out of here because so many people are depending on me. And if I was to leave, it would just be shattering to a, a lot of people within the prison. And he goes, I, I don't even know if I could actually do it. I think it would be cruel to leave this. And, you know, that that's the kind of things he's thinking. He's always thinking about other people and wow. he's, he's genuine. You know, he really means it. He lives that way. It's, it's really amazing to see how many people that, you know, are in our, our criminal justice system that are locked away have been convicted of crimes. And once you look in those cases and you see that they may have been wrongfully convicted and you see the selflessness of them not wanting to leave prison. And even though they've been wrongfully convicted, they still yeah. feel bad leaving the people that they were uh, locked away with because they, you know, that's their family. They've been been in prisons for so many years that that is this is this these are their children. These are their brothers. These are right. their sisters. You know, this it's pretty pretty wild to to think about. The, but the truth but, is, they're also scared, right? Yeah, yeah. Deep down, that's that's something we do as humans. Oh, so and so needs me. When you when you're afraid, when to get out of your comfort zone to try the unknown, right? I mean, Leo's been behind bars. He's, he's grown into a man behind bars. He doesn't mm -hmm. know anything else. So a lot of that is also his own fears and what is life going to look like for me on the outside? Will yeah. I survive it? Because this is all I know. So it, it is scary. And we know a lot of people don't do very well. It, it's, yeah. it's hard. It's shocking life. Imagine how much life has changed from when he went into now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, the whole world has changed, you know, like cell phones and just everything is just different. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think he would be fine because he's got so much support and I think he has a mission, like his things that he wants to accomplish if he does get out. Um, and they are about criminal justice reform. And I think, you know, that's what means the most to him right now. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I think he, he would be one of the ones who would rise and, and would, would do well because of the support system um, behind him. And he's, you know, he actually, it's hard to imagine, but he's been married for almost 30 years. So like he mm. has a family outside. That's right, that, Chrissy. That is very supportive. He has a daughter. Yeah. yeah. He has a daughter too. And I, I mean, I was great, two grandkids now too. So it's like yeah. he, yeah, it's tragic also because he sort of raised Ashley, his daughter, like on this square little patch of grass in the visitation pavilion and now he's there with his grandchildren on the same patch of grass and it's just really heartbreaking when you look at the time that passes absolutely but a beautiful story too yeah yeah do you still talk to jeremy yes you do i um I, it's not frequent he's in solitary confinement again i'll just tell you this interesting story so I'm the only one who writes him, but he's, he told me he's the only, I'm the only person he gets letters from. And uh, after we interviewed him uh, and he started getting some mail for, or he started getting some requests from like television shows like ABC's 2020, because they knew he talked to me. They were trying to get him. He didn't really know what it was about, uh, but he wrote me this letter and it was so strange to receive. He says, you know, I know you, you've done your story and um, I don't hold any grudge for you about what you're doing. And, you know, I, I wish you the best with it, but um, I'm about to go to the dark side again and um, I'm going to be locked up for a long time. And, you know, we didn't hear from him for a while and finally got some information back that, you know, shortly after he wrote that letter, that he has some kind of in, 
incident with a knife that put him in like solitary confinement mm-hmm. for like six months. And so I don't know what happened. I haven't gotten the word of it, but it sounds like there was some kind of attack. And, you know, that's that's who he is. He feels like he's, he's constantly demons. in danger. Yeah. 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 And he doesn't have the, the really tools to deal with this stuff. So his his first reaction is usually violent. Um, and and so, you know, this this is a man who should not be out on the streets. There's no no question about that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I do feel some compassion for him when I find out like he does have family, but he's not getting any contact with them. And, you know, well, I'm the only person that's writing him. I, I don't, it's a responsibility. I mean, there's nothing I can do except talk to him and, and listen to him. And he, you know, he likes to tell stories and he, he likes to communicate. And so send him some stamps and hope to hear from him. And I hear from him every couple of months now because he's yeah. locked up, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, the reality is, is this is very similar to the reasonable doubt. The reasonable conclusion is that here is Leo Schofield and he is innocent, yet he's still behind bars. This is something where we see very often. And it's frustrating and disheartening, especially for me, a guy that spent most of his life working homicide cases. Were you surprised at times to see the justice system look the other way and ignore all of this evidence that came about after the investigation? Yeah, I really am surprised. You know, I I just feel like there's a lot of ego involved, and this is all for Mm -hmm. the prosecutorial side. you know, just this protecting the conviction and this finality and, 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 you know, once, once you're convicted, it it gets really much more difficult to gain your innocence. Your best shot at that is in your original trial. Right. Um, but once the trial is over, you're no longer presumed innocent. Now you're presumed guilty. And there's a very tighter, tight window. Uh, you know, it's gotta be something that's new evidence. It, there's a, it's very difficult. And, uh, you know, in this case, this to me is a slam dunk for some reason, if you put it, look at it this way, if it was reversed, if let's just say Jeremy Scott was in another prison and he just came out and wrote a letter saying, I confessed to this murder back in 87. Here's all the details. I did it. You know, what's the, what's the prosecutor going to say at that point? That's all great. They're going to say, that's all great. Are you forensically tied to this crime scene? Because otherwise that's just a story. And he is forensically tied to the crime scene. If you look at it that way, it's like, this is a no brainer, right? But because it came First, the fingerprints were identified. They did an investigation. You know, they brought Jeremy in. And the same prosecutor who prosecutes Leo Schofield is in charge of the investigation on Jeremy Scott. So it's no surprise to me that he closed it like so quickly because yeah. he didn't want anyone looking into this. And so he closed it quickly. And then, and that's what he did. And he, he got away with it. And But have you ever you thought, know, why? Why? John Aguero, who's now he's passed away. Uh, right. Why you, you can't ask him this, but I know you've sat up and thought, why would he choose to ignore the reality and common sense that it likely was Jeremy, who had already was already linked to other murders and and had the history? Um, why would he choose to ignore that and stick to Leo? You know, I, I just think it's one of those things where it's a black mark on your career. If you're trying to advance within, you know, the office, he's the head of homicide prosecution. You know, maybe he has his eyes on, on being, you know, he's the superstar attorney in that office. Maybe he has his eyes on being state attorney. You don't want to find out that one of your cases came back and you botched it and you convicted the yeah. wrong person. So they 
what do they do? Just like, let's make that go away. And you can sort of see the way, like the way they want to argue it, you know, like he, Jeremy Scott has zero credibility. No, you can't believe a word he says, except when he says he didn't kill Michelle, that you right. can, you can believe, you know, it's just preposterous. And, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of ego and, and career mindedness that seeps in to this office. But, you know, one of the things is the prosecutor's job is to you know, seek justice. It's not to win convictions. And um, th that's unfortunately what you Should see be. in a lot of offices, you know? Yeah. I'd mm -hmm. like to chuck it down to central Florida. <laughs> the mentality there, oftentimes the fact that they don't have a conviction integrity unit there in that County, which is, is disheartening because a lot of counties are, they, they have them now and they're really important. It's like what Chris and I do. It's two sides coming together, working together to make sure you have the right person behind bars because that's justice. Right. Um, but you can't just blame it on Florida. Um, mm -hmm. You can't. Chris and I have been there many times and yep. had many cases there and we can say they get it wrong often. Uh, but it is something, unfortunately, that is common throughout the country. This whole prosecutors digging their heels in because, well, uh, that we already got a conviction and we don't want to go back. We don't want to have lawsuits. We don't want to have any of this, which is sad because really a, a prosecutor mind blowing, blowing to some people, you, you can't sue a prosecutor. The prosecutor won't be disciplined. They won't be disbarred um, unless they did something completely wild and, and against all ethics convicting the wrong person. You're not going to get in trouble for it. You can keep your job. And so that's the frustrating part is you're not on the verge of losing your job, maybe your reputation, yeah. but it happens. Right. And that's what's sad is that they're still choosing even at parole hearings, the fact that they're showing up and they're saying, look at this, look at the photos, look at these autopsy photos, right? They're, they're really trying to yeah. get to the emotions of the panel and they're desperate. And they're saying, look at these, they, they did this. And that is going to work for a panel, especially one that is looking for remorse, which unfortunately a lot of them still do require that they require you in order to be paroled to say sorry and show remorse. And that doesn't work for people who uh, claim their innocence, who are innocent, right? Um, but it is far too common. And that's part of the reason we have the show reasonable doubt. Uh, that's a, that's why I appreciated this podcast because I think a lot of people just can't believe it until they hear it until it's right there in front of them that wait a minute, wait a minute, you get to the end of this podcast and spoiler alert, Leo is still behind bars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just touched on so many important points and I, I love the fact that you come at it from two different directions. It reminds mm -hmm. me like, I get a lot of emails from like, you know, police and prosecutors themselves and, and just saying, hey, I listen to this. I totally believe you have this story right. And it's kind of embarrassing for me to see how this was, case was prosecuted. Um, you know, I, I think some of the police work was sloppy, but it was not as bad as what the prosecution was doing in this case. And, you know, the, the, the other thing when you talk about like the integrity of, you know, what, what's going to happen to a prosecutor if he gets a case wrong or, you know, sometimes they, they will say to me, like, we don't, we try our cases in, before a jury in the courts. Uh, we have greater integrity than the court of public opinion. And, you know, you just touched on a, a good point. Like the worst anything ever happens to a prosecutor, if they withhold evidence, exculpatory evidence from the defense, maybe it gets to a, a higher court. 
and they write, uh, say, the prosecutor erred in holding this evidence back, you know, we over, or or if it's really bad, they'll name the prosecutor in a footnote, right? And like, that's the worst thing that ever happens to opinion, you. maybe. Right. Yeah. And this is like, you know, you could be ruining somebody's life by doing this. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'm out there writing a book, right? So I have no credibility because I'm not in the court system. Well, let me tell you, if I was writing Devil in the Grove and I found a document in a law file that uh, all four def defendants actually confessed and told their lawyers that they actually did this, but they want to get off. Can you help? And I said, Ooh, that doesn't fit my narrative. I'm going to put that to the side, like the right. prosecutors do. And I got oh. caught doing that. My, my book would never be write a book. The shelf. Right, I never get published again. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, these prosecutors just move on to the next case. They don't get fired or anything. And so, and I didn't hurt Journalists anybody. are held yeah. to a higher standard. Exactly. Wild. Right. And, and like, you know, withholding evidence, like I honestly, you're trying to tell a story. I could never do something like that. That's like the worst thing you could possibly do is say, oh, that doesn't fit my story. Let's get rid of that and hide it because I, I want to tell this story. I mean, but that's what prosecutors do when they withhold exculpatory evidence there. Mm -hmm. And it's worse because someone's going to pay for that with their life. And so yeah. to me, it's like, don't argue that point with me anymore because, you know, you showed your integrity and your credibility and I'm just trying to show the truth of what happened. And, uh, you know, so I feel very strongly about that. <laughs> Mm. Absolutely, we agree. You know, I, I feel the, police officer. The, the exact same way because, you know, look, let's let's be honest. You know, there's a lot of, uh, of, of, what's the word I'm looking for? I, Lazy? <laughs> no, no, you know, there's a lot of salaciousness in, in, mm. in reporting these days. And everybody's looking for that, that one uh, a big, thing which this is a huge huge story and but I, I love the way how how even and balanced the entire thing was the entire investigation the entire podcast you can tell especially me being an investigator that there's no salaciousness you you to me and this and i'm not just saying this i would say this in front of anybody i'm not just saying this because you're here to me you set out to find on a truth seeking mission and that's where sometimes I see, you know, investigative reporters that are just speaking about truth seeking missions when they are in all actuality, they're, they're looking for clicks, they're looking for, you know, as many times or, or the, the that patata type portion of the investigation. And they're willing to sometimes, and I hate to say it, sometimes make it up. So I, I appreciate what you did with this investigation and, and me. And I'm not a reporter, I'm an investigator. I, I look at it and I can see how even keel you were throughout the entire time uh, you spoke about the case or you were investigating the case. That's what I appreciate about it. Well, that's really nice to hear. You know, I, I, I think honestly, this might be the reason. If, if you are very confident that you have the truth on your side, mm -hmm. then it's okay to show Leo in at his worst moments early on. And it's okay to show Jeremy as a very violent person. And you can do all of that. If you have the truth on your side, get it all out there and, you know, let people hear it all and then move through the story. And when you get to the end, you kind of have an idea that you've, you've seen and heard all of it. You know, there's nothing that we're withholding. We're, we're showing Leo in his worst moments. He admits to slapping Michelle as part of mm -hmm. his story. Um, you know, he didn't come across very well in, in trial. Um, it, it, life is complicated. It, these aren't the fuzzy bunnies, you know, like, 
it's the church lady who gets accused of murder and she's never, you know, so much as jaywalked in her life. Well, that would be right. wonderful if that was your case. But I find right. it more interesting that those gray areas where, you know, right. these kind of this is this is the truth. These are the people we're dealing with. Many of them are pregnant at 13. They're getting into trouble with the law. And these are our witnesses. But I think, you know, they had helped us advance the story because they wanted to talk to us and tell us mm -hmm. what Jeremy was like and tell us what Leah was like. And, you know, there so if this, you, you know. there was this part where and, and for the listeners, another reason you have to listen to Bone Valley is because Gilbert's not only trying to solve this crime, but he, he basically solves another crime <laughs> while trying to solve this crime. That, that happens he, every day, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> going, <no. laughs> he's going, let me chase this. And he doesn't say, well, this is going to take time. This doesn't really let me stick to what I have. I think I've got it right. He goes, let me follow this. Right. There's this moment where you're going to there was another man who was accused of killing a cab driver. And Jeremy Scott has confessed to this now years later to killing that cab driver. And he confessed that to you as well. So right. he's confessed a couple of murders to you. But you go and find this man that has already been tried and, and he was acquitted. Right. Um, but I believe he was tried twice, right? Yes, yes. Um, for for the murder of this cab driver. And there's this moment when you're pulling up and, and you're talking to your partner. And we'll talk about that, Kelsey. Uh, our listeners had some questions about her. But um, you pull up and you, and you say, as, as we're going there, you're a little nervous. Um, and you notice a Confederate flag or he's wearing a Confederate flag hat, something uh, to that nature. And you're portraying this person as he's not, once again, very likable. And then you tell his story and it's very sad because despite whatever kind of person he may be, as far as what his beliefs are or anything like that, he was tried multiple times for something he didn't do. And now he remains somebody in the community that's, you know, shunned on, shunned upon. Yes. Um, he's not, people still think maybe he did it and it, it's followed him all his life. And it's just the way in which you tell this story, right? It's somebody who's flawed. It's somebody who might be scary, might look completely capable. Maybe he's done other things, but he didn't do this. Mm -hmm. um, and that was what I really liked about the storytelling. So I just, oh, that, I just wanted to that, tell that part. That's really great. I mean, that Confederate flag heart was like, I remember we, when we first met him, he's wearing this Confederate flag hat. And it wasn't the fact that it's a Confederate flag hat that was throwing us off because I definitely don't see too many of those in New York city, but what was really, really throwing us off hmm. is the, yeah. <laughs> Cause they're but, everywhere. Was, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm oh sure I, when I go down yes, south, yeah. I see him all the time, but, but, you know, but it wasn't really that aspect of it. What, what it was, was that the, the murder was believed to have left a black hat in the cab uh, after the killing. And it was a Confederate flag hat. That's so right. like when we, when we, when he answers the door, it's like, Oh, God, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the maybe same it was hat, him. <laughs> yeah, that you know, that's we had that thought. Like, what the hell are we do? Do we look this? We didn't really look into this case that much. You know? <laughs> um, but it was clear. Like when you talk to him, it was a lot like talking to Leo. He was just like, "Look, you guys want to investigate? Go out, go for it." Because I feel like people still look at me in town and go, "You know, did he or did he not do it?" You know. Mm. And you know, if you were if you were you know guilty and you'd been acquitted. You don't want two journalists coming in, poking around and saying, hey, we're going to oh, yeah. going to reinvestigate this. He, you know, he, I think your answer would be like, I want nothing to do with it. This is over. It's part of my life. It's not part of my life anymore. Good luck to you. But he was like, go out there if you could find anything, because if it would help clear my name officially, that would be really amazing. Um, this case is really angering me still. And I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not done with it because the, the sheriff's department 
basically blew off everything I brought right. them and they have not done any investigation. Um, and they smeared Dan Odie's name by saying, you know, he was the murderer. We just, we could, just couldn't convict him. You know, you know, it's all about that finality. We're supposed to respect the, the jury when they convict, but if they, uh, if they acquit, well, then the state doesn't really. Right. They got it wrong. Things. Oh, they got it yeah. wrong that time. Right. And then, wow. you know, some guy, some poor guy who's been acquitted is being called a murderer again by the state. Right. You know, it's just, uh, really I love pathetic. that you don't stop. I love that. And, and especially here because the reality is, and you can explain to our listeners, Leo has exhausted all his appeals, right? Yes. That's why he's, he's still got, behind you know, bars. Right. And, and, you know, it, 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 not only is that like, well, the evidence that you bring like forensic evidence, linking someone else to the crime scene and a confession multiple times by the person who's forensically linked and the courts have ruled that uh, Jeremy has no credibility and that his confessions cannot be believed. So you, you can't keep bringing Jeremy's confession to, and you, you already got the fingerprints. What else is there going to be like a, all of a sudden some hidden video camera in a tree or something like that. that's right. not going to happen. So, right. you know, he's kind of done. Um, and just to explain to listeners, you, there's appeals you can make along the way, but once you've exhausted all those, the only appeal you can bring is if there is new evidence. And yeah. so what we do have are Jeremy Scott's fingerprints at the scene and we have a confession, but we've talked about this many times on this podcast and in our show, reasonable doubt, when you do have somebody who has given different stories, right? Especially yeah. when the burden is now shifted, um, that is going to be difficult. Even if there are reasons they're telling different stories, right? Maybe it's the way they've been asked a question. Maybe it's that they've never felt comfortable coming out with the truth until now. Um, but that does matter. The wow. inconsistencies will be used against you. And a judge will often say, well, if they lied the first time, then who's to say they're not lying now? Your credibility is shot. And that's oftentimes to me as a criminal defense attorney in these kinds of cases, that's a cop out. That's yeah. what you use when you just say, we can't reverse all this and yeah. we're I, not going to go through all this. It's, you know, he's not credible. That is bullshit. I totally you see agree. the story here. Common sense. I mean, what do you, we're, okay, we're going to say Leo, first of all, the timeline doesn't fit, but Leo killed his wife. And then, oh, Jeremy Scott, who's also a murderer, just comes by her car and decides to steal her radio and that's it. Mm. Um, no, that that's not the case. And we've told our listeners this often, and it's so sad, but no, our system oftentimes does not care for the truth. No, they don't. They really they care for finality. Mm -hmm. They care for reputations more than freeing an innocent person. Yeah. And, you know, there's parts that we really couldn't even fit into the podcast that, you know, like just more evidence, I think that, you know, really makes it very clear. It made it very clear to me was when the investigators were interviewing Jeremy and when Jeremy was trying to lie and say that he only stole the stereo equipment, the investigators walked him through that story. And it was nothing like our interview with Jeremy, where he's getting emotional and, and dealing with memories. In this case, you know, he's got an 80 IQ. He's got some seriously, he does have brain damage. It's documented in his psychological reports. So when Jeremy starts telling these lies, these false narratives, he slips up so many times. You know, there's a part where he says, well, I, I drove to this gas station right where the car was found. And I made a U-turn. I drove over to the dumpster and I stopped the car in front of the dumpster. And like, he mentions the dumpster like three times and like the dumpster is where he dropped the weapons. So if he didn't know about the weapons or anything, why does he keep focusing on that 
that dumpster, you know, and then he's, he's trying to say, well, I, I was with this. It was, I, I remember it clearly. It was, I was in Cheryl's car. And then like five minutes later, it's, it's someone else's car. He can't remember the friend that he's with. He thinks it's Robert, but maybe it was Rambo. Uh, he just can't keep the story straight. When you, when you hear him talking to us, when he walks through that night, like it's so much more emotional. It's so much more the truth than those things that he was trying to say to please the investigators. Hmm. Wow. Well, I have to say, um, this, there's a, there's a bonus episode at the end and I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it, Chris, I listened to it recently. I listened to all nine episodes. I was very moved, but that bonus episode, mm -mm, that wasn't right. Gilbert. I cried <laughs> so I hard. Tell me I'm not the only one. I ugly cried. No, you're not the only one. Trust so me. So many moments in that. I could not believe it. It's only like 15 minutes long or 20 minutes. And I, I, maybe it was just a culmination of all of it at the very end, but I don't want to tell our listeners what happens and, and why it's so emotional. There is a moment, there's many moments, but there's a moment and I can cry right now, even mm -hmm. thinking about it. Um, between you and Leo, that was so special because you sought out to just get the truth of a story. And in the process, you met a man who has become like a brother to you, someone who you trust and someone who you love. And in the very end, you tell him that he says, I love you. And you say, I love you, bud. And you feel that love. You feel you feel this emotion of you almost just so desperate to free him, to, to want to tell his story, to get him out of there. And, and all of this work you've done, it's, it's your way. And at the very end of saying, this is, this is all I can do for you right now. Yeah. And obviously you're still fighting for him and it's wonderful. And that's what, why we're having you on here. And we want to continue this story and get it out there. But I just love that friendship that developed and that connection. And well, so I just, I, I'm, I'm I just glad let it all out. Movie. I, I, you know, I trust our, our producers and to sort of be the judges of this because it's all very awkward for me. You know, I, I sometimes talking to Leo, I forget we're recording it and it's just a conversation and I'm so in the moment. But, you know, I, I didn't start talking to Leo like that until honestly, like four years had passed. I was always strictly just, interviewing him and doing that and then like well once we finish the podcast and you know I, i'm absolutely convinced he's wrongfully convicted and you know i so there there is there comes a stage where the podcast is kind of done but we're still you know talking and working and and it is getting personal i mean i i just feel really badly and that's part of the reason you know judge cup is is a central part of this bonus episode um you can God see bless that people man. have feelings yeah. about Leo Schofield, the people that know him. And I'm talking about the people I've met in the prison who have told me how much he saved their lives. Um, but to hear a judge, you know, one of the early questions I asked Judge Cup, I said, what does Leo mean to you as a human being? And, you know, he lost it and just started crying. Now, we didn't put that in the podcast, but, you know, he was an emotional man about that. And, you know, he gave an answer about what Leo's been. He says, Leo's practically saved my life in a lot of ways. He's taught me to be a better person. And I understand that. That's that's who Leo is. Um, 
so yeah, there is a friendship that developed. It, it, it took a long time because I was a little bit standoffish about it. Um, you know, I just well, didn't and they call that journalistic it. integrity, right? Ma- right? Maintaining those boundaries. You're trying to get to the truth. You don't want to, but that's what I love. At the end, it's like, okay, well, now that's left after all that. Now what's yeah. left is a friendship. Um, yeah. And you don't get emotional ever throughout all the episodes. And I could hear it at that very end. I'm like, oh, Gilbert's getting a little emotional here. And it's, it's a lovely thing to see because how do you not, after all these years of putting in that work and, and knowing what you know, and it's just impossible not to have the emotional connection at that point. Yeah. You know, there was a part at the very end, you know, we would working together on this for, for all nine episodes. And, you know, I think every one of us was so invested in it and just couldn't wait to do this. And, you know, the ninth episode is like me going to the prison to visit Leo. And then I, I talk about leaving and driving past all the places in bone Valley. Mm-hmm. And I talk about, you know, imagining leo if if things were different maybe he'd open up as a band for like def leppard or you know iron maiden or one of those (laughs) things and i just talk about but that will never happen because the state you know took leo's freedom and 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 i got really emotional i i couldn't read that without like my voice cracking and getting bad and i i think we did it four times finally towards the end i got you know, still cracking and still emotional in there, but they they wanted to keep it in there. But it was only because I couldn't do it I, without getting emotional myself. That's so, all right, Chris and I don't yeah. judge. Oh, we I have. Don't care. I, I don't have care ugly either. cried on our show. <laughs> I everybody makes fun of my ugly cry face, and Chris he gets things no. in his eyes too. Believe it or not, it's the lighting for I don't me. Know about I that. never never cried. Yeah. I, I just it's just lighting. I thought it was bad lighting. Six, I five. have had to. <laughs> I have been sitting at a table and I've had to grab that man's hand. Because I just want to wail. <laughs> Sometimes at the end, it's like a therapeutic. You want to let it. And I've just grabbed his hand, and I know I make it worse for him. Because then you see in the show, he's like, <laughs> it's yeah, hard. I know what you're talking. I have about. a blinking yeah. problem. It's it's yes, it's, it's, it's a blinking. Yeah, it's well, <laughs> we have cries. appreciated and loved this conversation. But quickly before we go, there were a few questions from our listeners. Chris, oh, if great. you want to throw out a few of those, so we can answer those for them. Absolutely. Now, this is uh, uh, not, we got this question from one of our listeners, but I'm actually interested in knowing this myself. What can we do to help this case? Is there anything that we can do? And we've done a lot of things. We've we've, we've started writing campaigns. We've, we've tried to make sure we put in calls to the parole board. What what, uh, what can we do as listeners, as fans of the show to help this case? I'm going to tell you the thing that has started the Innocence Project of Florida has started with a petition to try to get the Leo's case transferred to a, a unit with the Conviction Integrity Review Unit. Um, so that's the first step is just signing this petition. You can find it on on the Lava for Good page, the Bone Valley show notes, or just go to change.org and Google Leo Schofield. You find it there. I think there's like 12,000 signatures on it already. We're, we're trying to obviously grow that. Um, and I think there's going to be some next steps coming up. We we sort of were holding off until after the elections because there's political ramifications for, for things like clemency. Um, but I, I think that's going to be a next step. There's also going to be a parole coming up in the spring. And um, that is a really important one. I think there, that's going to involve some media coverage. And I've already heard from, honestly, like hundreds of people who said that they will show up at that parole board mm-hmm. um, outside on the steps. And, you know, it'll be a And that parole event. board will be listening to this podcast. Yes, they oh, will. that's right. 
Yeah. We've I had parole so. boards watch our show and our mm-hmm. show comes into those parole conversations. So Oh wow, that's interesting. Well don't I didn't underestimate really think the power that. of that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you know, I, let's hope so. I mean, really honestly, they have these um parole hearings every couple of years, and it's always just comes down to the fact that the retired state attorney shows up with the autopsy pictures and says this man's never said he's sorry. And when a when a state attorney shows up you know, that's a powerful person. And he's basically telling the commissioners how to vote. It's very rare that they go up against that. Um, yeah. if, if a state attorney shows up, I don't know if a state attorney or someone from that office is going to show up at the next parole hearing, but sort of expect that they will. I think they've really doubled down on this. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the well, next you've step. called them on it. I'd be embarrassed if I were them to do the same tactic. So <laughs> yeah, I, I I, everybody's be. listened. They just do. Uh, we've in all of our cases where it's a situation like this, the the guards have, have watched it and, wow. and talk about it. The prosecutors, uh, everyone involved, they, That's amazing. They, they may not be able to consider it in things, but it's in the back of their mind and it yeah. makes a difference. So well, that's really refreshing to hear. I had no idea about that. So that if that's the case, I think that's a good thing. But so, what about a book or a movie? Do you think this case will ever go to? We see it on the big screen. I think so. There are some talks going on right now about that. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people have come to us saying, you know, they want to do this story, and I think um, I think we might have found the right partner for this, and just okay. going to hear out some ideas. But I think. I don't know. I've been down this road so many times with my books and the, yeah, and Devil nothing. in the Grove was supposed to. I you was know, waiting. I, I'm waiting for that one. I just said, like my producers just keep dying unexpectedly and it derails the project mm-hmm. or suddenly dying, really dying. Yeah. I've had oh, how devastating. producers in their in their late forties that got, you know, very sick very quickly and, oh and passed away. And it just derails the whole project. It's really bad luck with That's it. Stress. But yeah, but hopefully this will be different. Um, I've even talked to Leo about working on a book together because he keeps journals and he has a lot to say. And I've read some books by you know inmates um, who've written books like Solitary, and they're you know really beautiful. And there's stories there, and so I, I am considering that. Um, but yeah, obviously as you can tell I'm not quite done with this story yet. Right. Right. Yeah, that would be really cool to have here some chapters in your voice, others in his, and. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're playing around with. And, you know, he sends me letters a lot that are just really just so thoughtful and full of memories. And he's just a very good writer. Um, so I think it could work. Uh, so one question is, uh, sure. briefly, we want to talk about Kelsey Decker because oh. she's awesome and she's your other half in the podcast. Yeah. And so one listener asked, how was it working with a young person, Kelsey Decker? What did she bring to the table that you felt was essential considering you were both very different? Yeah. You know, she started out as a researcher and I, I hired her for my books because I, I thought I was going to be doing a book and I had like a couple different projects going. So I, I put her on the book thing and she was helping me with, with that. She's, she comes from an oral history thing. So she's got a, like a background in library research. And uh, I remember I had a couple projects. And then when I got Leo's case, I was like, wow, this one's really interesting, but I have a book that I was supposed to be working on. And what do you think I should prioritize? And, and I remember she just said, well, there's an innocent person in prison that looks like that should be the priority. And I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Like the other All stuff right. can wait. This guy can't wait. And what she, you know, she, what she brought was her passion. She just dove into the transcripts, dove into the police reports. She became the keeper of the facts. She knew everything. So I felt really confident that I could 
talk to people and do interviews and make sure I got it right because she knew the case much better than I did. And so she was like an encyclopedic knowledge of all the facts of the case. And she also had this passion. And so, you know, it's just like, it doesn't matter that you don't come from the world of journalism. I didn't come from the world of journalism. I, I was always passionate about these kind of stories myself. And so that's what I was looking for. Someone who just cared to just keep investigating. And she rose, you know, she started out as a researcher then when we decided to do a podcast, she had to learn all the audio equipment and, and, and she did all that self-taught on the job. We did that. And then, you know, sooner or later, she becomes like interviewing people on her own, including the state attorney himself. That, and, you know, yeah, she has a, a couple scene. of special <laughs> moments uh, in the series. And that was one of my favorite moments. You know, she really brings the humanity to the case. Uh, there's a moment she she's talking about how nervous she is to go yeah. and interview and, and do this interview and you can hear her voice shaking, but it's just, it's so it's special because that's true. That that's how she's feeling. She is, but she is invested and in, she gets him on things, right? Oh, so she's yeah. nervous and she's intimidated and yeah. who wouldn't be. And then she goes, mm, no, you have this fact wrong. And I'm going, yes, girl, yeah. like get it because yeah as as afraid as she is what she's not afraid of is the truth what she's not afraid of is getting this right and so there was that moment for me and there's another moment when she gets in the car after you both have looked at the autopsy photos and it's just a very human moment where all of this we're listening to a story about a woman but nobody really gets a moment of silence for, we don't really have a moment of silence for Michelle. And in that moment, we finally do because it hits her. This is, this is something that really happened to someone and it's devastating and it's horrific and it was brutal and it was violent. And um, she just really humanized the victim in this for us. So I felt like you two were just a really good pair. Yeah. I, I mean, she, she's just great. And she was really, her contributions to this project are really understated. She was also an, an incredible editor and writer, and she just sees the story in ways that I didn't even see it. Mm -hmm. um, so her, I, I can't even, I can't even begin to tell you how valuable she was to this pr program. You know, that, that part where after the autopsy pictures, we were going to go debrief in the car, we keep the tape running the whole time. It's like, we forget about it. Um, and you know, we're, we're, we're trying to start and she's, I can just see her processing what she just saw and she just lost it. And it was a real honest moment. Um, it wasn't like something that we're trying to manipulate. I mean, it was just, that's who she is. Uh, and that was her reaction. I, to be honest with you, I was a little unsure about it. Like if it would be seen as too manipulative or, or too emotional and I, as you know, from a journalistic point of view. And I was like, you know what, we're not really journalists. We're, we're doing like there is journalism in our job, but there's also documentary work. And, and this is real, this happened and it's part of our story. And, and that's you know, not taking aside that yeah, out of everything is the facts that right, right there, a woman right. was brutally murdered. Right. And, you know, and, and the part about interviewing the state attorney, I just thought, yeah, I was, I couldn't be there for that. So that all fell on her. And that was a lot to ask her, you know, it was like <laughs> the most important interview we really could do the state refused to talk to us. And, uh, I, there was just a moment. Yeah. She's nervous. But then like, I realized she's going to be like, I knew he was in trouble because like, I, I know the case really well and she'll get me sometimes, you know? And so like when this guy got up there and starts spouting this stuff, that's not true. I said, I just remember listening. Oh, he's dead. And, uh, and sure enough, she called him on everything. And I there's it. a point where he's like trying to do this little lady thing with him, you know, cause she's uh, like, right. Gross. And, and, 
She's like, I related to her so much in that moment. I really did. I mean, I've been that woman so many times and somebody's just like, Hey, Hey, Hey. And Oh no, but these are the facts. Um, no, excuse me. I I know this better than you do. Nobody knows the case better than you. So go Kelsey. I love that moment. (laughs) Yeah. There was just a moment where where he, you know, he's trying, he's getting flustered a little bit because she's correcting him and stuff and not letting (laughs) him get away with stuff. And he's like, well, did, did you read the transcript? Did you read the reports? And she just goes, I read it all. <laughs> and I just like, I love that line so much. It's just buried in there, but it's so true. Like, don't even try it. Don't even Tell try her it. I'm a fan, please. Definitely. Yeah, good. she's got a lot of fans. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. So just a few more questions. Gil, sure. What, what, what's next for you? Well, I, I mean, I actually really liked doing this podcast. I really liked the collaborative efforts that we had with our team. Um, Mm -hmm. It was one of the things that, you know, when you're a writer, sometimes it's very solitary. You're off doing research by yourself. You're writing by yourself. There's no, in this particular case, I had like, Kelsey was like really like the right-hand person. I had this conversation with, we talked through the story a million times, and then we get these producers and sound editors and they bring their particular skills. Uh, Kara was the senior producer and she just help lay this out in a way like we don't know podcasts and she's like (laughs) start with the tape and we'll work around the tape and it was like wow this is so much stronger than the script i wrote before when i wasn't thinking that way (laughs) and then you know have brit come in with the sound design and just let's leave this real quiet there's no reason to say it let's don't say it just let the silence sit those are things i could never think of um but those kind of things that really just help make the story more poignant you know we don't have a lot of screechy music and Mm -hmm. it's just very very understated and very subtle and that's sort of the way we want it we knew we had a strong story let's let the story speak for itself Mm -hmm. and this is the, the the fun of it for me was just working with a group because I I'm not really used to that so I'm I have a burning desire to do another story with the same exact team because I just felt we were always on the same page together and even when we weren't we were trying to make it better and if we had arguments it was like we all listened to each other and it was like the funnest experience of my life right I think we uh, could relate to that yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of sure. understand we that when we're not filming and I, and I just go back to practice, I miss my team. I miss my partner. We, mm-hmm. when we're on the road, man, we have a good team and it's right. not just me and Chris and our mm-hmm. producers whom we absolutely love. And we go at it, Gilbert. Yeah. I mean, Chris and I, not so much. We've got this, I, I, I've got such a respect for my brother here and he's got <laughs> a respect for me. Mm-hmm. Not to say we that I don't respect our producer, but we just all we're all Virgos. So we yeah. all just go at it. <laughs> all of us are Virgos and we yeah. just go at it. And there have had to be there have had to have we've had to have some serious talks before we go on other seasons because we've done so many before. Um, where it's like, okay, how are we gonna deal with this? Somebody's gonna walk away for 10 minutes and then we're gonna come back. But the truth of it is we we miss it. We love working together. It's more fun when you have a team and when everybody yeah. has the same mission, which is justice truth and you kind of hold one another to that when you get a little too deep in the woods and emotions and all these other things um you know i could be too defense attorney and too technical right with certain things is this person i remember a lot of times our producer and chris saying is this person wrongfully convicted or are they innocent right there's there is a difference and that is something I'm not used to in my job because those things shouldn't matter, right? I'm going right. to zealously defend regardless. But in this case, for the show, it does matter. So 
it's just more fun working together. So, and I think you, you had a great team bone Valley, obviously it's that you're just getting started. And so I'm so excited for what's to come that I would highly encourage you all to continue with what you've got. Well, I, that's the greatest advice. And I, I totally relate to all the things you just said. And, you know, it's just like the idea of going back into an office by myself feels like I'm missing something. I want to be working with people. Um, you know, that doesn't mean I'm going to give up writing, but I, you know, I, I definitely want to do another podcast. I really, I just so much enjoyed it. And I just think it can be so much, well, maybe better. I don't know if you can say that, but I've learned so much in the process. Right. And now, like I can cut out a lot of the things that took me six months to figure out, Right. you know, that you just leave on the cutting room floor because you went down a rabbit hole or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, I'm sure you if can you relate. you need some good cases, yeah. um, we've got some. We yeah, have four we have seasons worth ones. and some of those are real good. Wow. Well, I would love to talk to you about that because I, I think you're right. And I, I bet you have a really great selection of cases that are really interesting. So, uh, you know, I'll definitely talk to you about that anytime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. So final question, where can right. our listeners follow you on social media? Well, I'm, I'm really not so great at Twitter. I'm trying to get better at it. Um, yeah. but uh, I'm join the crowd. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, we're not great at it. I know, but I am, I am doing it. I think a lot of what I'm doing is like, well, this will help Leo and I'll, I'll just do this stuff that I wouldn't mm -hmm. normally do for myself, but I should use it that way. So I'm learning Twitter. I, I have a website. Lava for good has a website. Um, and we're doing updates and mostly doing a lot of updates through Instagram, uh, Twitter, every social media. Um, and I'm out there. You can find me on Twitter. That's usually what I'm using most. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not a social media kind of person, so I'm trying to do better at it and try to not spend. The I whole wasn't day. either. Chris is uh, so good at it. Gilbert, if you ever, if you're ever wondering what to do, go to his page. You, know, right, what he does? you know, what's easy. You know what he loves to do. He just puts it on and just drives while he's driving to work. And he goes, hey, family. And he just starts talking. And wow. everybody loves it. But yeah. me just talking to the camera and me talking to people, it, I don't love it so much, although we yeah. have to do it. Yeah. And family, there it is. The amazing Gilbert King of the podcast, Bone Valley. Listen to this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, because it is absolutely amazing. You will not be disappointed. And you have it. Another episode of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Join us again next week where we'll talk more crime and we'll talk a little more cookie juice. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have a good night. Good night. Good night.